Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning. Welcome to Episode 70. I am back from uh, my business trip slash, and I don't want to call it a vacation, but a couple of days of vacationing. Um, Bob, vacation with us today. Fun. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, welcome back. We uh, uh, had a fun weekend last week. It was great with uh, Robin Bull. She's uh, very fun to work with, that's for sure. Yeah, and I appreciate Robin uh, filling in for me. I was up in Maine. I had to meet with some clients, and I was handling uh, one motion hearing. And then I took the family with me. We went out to Acadia National Park. And, you know, it used to be when I was growing up, you wanted to contact the office or call somebody. You know, you'd find a pay phone, and you'd call, and it was okay that you didn't have a cell phone with you. But I felt like I had no pants on the whole weekend because I couldn't. I had no cell phone service. Like the Wi-Fi, I was trying to look for, you know, does this McDonald's have Wi-Fi and are there not 50 million other people from New Jersey here trying to get Wi-Fi access? So Start driving around trolling. <laughs> I, it was like I was uh, having some sort of withdrawal symptom. I, I could, my phone was just a brick. It did nothing for me. The battery lasted forever, though, by the way, with no service. <laughs> yeah. like look, at the, look at the battery. Outside. Way to go. Make that lemonade. <laughs> But, you know, you feel disconnected. It's so funny because, oh. you know, back in the 70s and 80s, when you went away, you know, your office couldn't get you. But now you just expect to have constant contact with the office. I was able, obviously, um, to do work when I was working with the office in Maine. But, you know, outside of that, you've got no idea what's going on. I could have been eaten by no, a bear uh... or a wild moose in Acadia National Park, <laughs> and nobody would know. <laughs> make a movie about you call you grizzly man <laughs> yeah i mean you'd be doing the show by yourself saying i wonder what happened to him i'd be up you know rotting in the mountains of acadia moose meat that's what i would have been so but i'm back. chewing your arm off to get away yeah all my technology works now so but it's amazing how dependent we've become upon it it's actually kind of sick it, it is but, it is that's 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 true <laughs> so but you don't have to tell you well, what acadia is a yeah. beautiful, beautiful place up there. And um, I, I tried to talk to some of the wildlife up there about uh, legal assistance. None of them were interested. But, you know, in, in all seriousness, it's such a different culture because the people that I, I w were meeting with, it was primarily business uh, clients. And the kind of work that, that they do up there, you know, you're dealing with, with fishermen and lobstermen and people who are opening seafood restaurants and businesses that primarily re revolve around the fishing industry and their needs and, and you know, uh, the kind of things that they are concerned about are so different than what we see here. You know, I'm, I'm like 20 minutes outside of New York City, and, and what our clients in New Jersey and New York are looking for is so different from 
um, you know, what you see up in other parts of the country. It's very interesting. Oh, sure, and we have that in, in Michigan as well, and, and obviously other parts of Michigan. It's the UP. It's very timber, and it used to be iron ore and, and other mining uh, economies, and now it's, it's so far removed from that uh, that it's, um, I don't know, it's called depressed up there, but it's, it's a beautiful place to go. But like what you're talking about is you know, regionality and, and the economy is, is amazing and how it's just, just not that far away, it's completely different. Yeah. Well, at least I have a place now to go when I don't want anybody in my office to bother me and I have a really good reason that they can't contact me. I'm just going to go to Maine. Sorry, I can't hear from you. Love to help you. I'm in Maine. Yeah. But, you know, I have to say, it's, it's really good. I have a really great uh, staff in the office, and it's really nice to know that when I am away, uh, I don't have to worry. They've got, you know, between uh, my, my administrator and then the uh, support staff and the attorneys that are here, it's really great to know that, you can go out, you can deal with business in other states, um, and know that back home everything's being taken care of. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Now, before we get into our regular news, uh, just a couple things I want to bring up. First of all, remember if you're listening to this show live, call in 347-855-8831. We'd like to hear from you. Give us your opinion about the stories that we're talking about. Um, if you've got news that you'd like to bring to the table, bring it in. Don't forget, Monday's show is primarily a week in review legal news show. Thursday's show is the interview show. So, you know, we want people to call in and, and give us your feedback. Um, once the show is over, make sure that you go to our various social media um, outlets, Twitter, Facebook, Blog Talk Radio. Go to the website, utlradio.com. Post your comments. Leave some notes. Let us know what you like. Uh, if you want more information about any of the stories, go ahead and contact us there. Uh, but before we get into the regular news, uh, there's a couple things I found interesting over the weekend, Bob. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the band Duran Duran from the 1980s? Absolutely, unfortunately. You know, Hungry Like the Wolf and all that? Sure. Yeah. This is, re- this is really interesting because um, Duran Duran is suing their own fan club. And at first, you know, the way that you see it in the media, you're like, oh, my God, you know, how could you be suing your own fan club? Your fans love you. Why would you do that? Um, but it's not, it's not literally, really. Literally biting the hand that feeds. Yeah, but it's, it's not like that at all. What it really is oh, okay. is Duran Duran, like many other artists, they use companies to manage their fan clubs. And in particular, Duran Duran used a company called Worldwide Fan Clubs, Inc., And the way that my understanding of their contract is that Worldwide Fan Club, Inc. was supposed to to get roughly 25% of any revenue derived from the fan club, and the band would get 75%. And Mm -hmm. since 2010, Duran Duran is alleging that the fan club just didn't pay them the amount of money that they were supposed to be. You know, they didn't pay their cut. They breached their contract. But it's interesting because... You know, I think that the way it's being presented in the news with Duran Duran suing their fan club, that's not true. They're suing a company that performed services for them under sure. a contract. So the fact that, well, the, you know, the product being a fan club, I don't know, it makes no, no difference because they signed a contract with another company. This company, by the way, is based right outside of Chicago. And um, it's, from what I understand... Not a super large company, but they've allegedly been withholding uh, withholding forty thousand dollars from Duran Duran that uh, Duran Duran was 
apparently entitled to. So that's a that's an interesting story to follow. Well, and two things about that. One, from an outsider standpoint, you know, like you know, the general public and reading the media and something that you said is how the media presents things and what the uh, belief or what the impression is made upon the reader, and they don't go any further. They don't read the story say, oh, they're not suing the fan club, they're suing the management company, which leads to a lot of misinformation, especially with uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and, and, and rumors that get started out there. It's just a, I, I call that a lack of res- journalistic responsibility sometimes. You know, and that's, that's why we do this show. That's why we have Understanding the Law, because we want people to understand the law, because news reporters are great. Listen, if they weren't out there, we wouldn't be getting stories, and, and I think it's a great service. <laughs> my, my background is in journalism, so I totally get it. But at the same time, you know, they're not lawyers, and they're not bringing a legal perspective to what they're reporting. Um, They'll sometimes rely on outside attorneys to give them some input. And, you know, I've done that in the past where a news outlet would contact me for information about a particular story. Um, But it's interesting because when you see that as a fan with a non-legal background and you see Duran Duran suing their fan club, you know, you might think, I can't believe – all the money that you guys have made over the years and you're suing your fan club, that's not right. But you nailed it on the head. It's, it's, not, uh, it's kind of a misinformation in, in a way because the news reporters are not going that next step and saying, well, there's more to it than that. You know, don't put these catchy headlines in that Duran Duran sues their fan club. They're suing a company that managed their fan club. There's a big difference. Well, do you think it drives more from a, uh, especially with online news sources these days, well, someone might read that and, and they, they, if, it, if it gave you all the information, would they click on it? If the, if the headline read, Duran Duran sues fan club management company, would you click on that? Or would you click on it if it says CNN, uh, on CNN.com per se, it says Duran Duran suing fan club. Oh, what's going on there? Yeah, and that's exactly why they do it. And, and so I get the philosophy behind, hey, let's bring these viewers in so they click on it. But unfortunately, most people, they, they kind of graze through their news at the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. They'll see a story. Right. They don't click on the full thing because they don't have time. They're on the bus. They're on the train. They're in the kitchen getting breakfast ready for the kids. They'll look at a headline, and they'll say, oh, look at this. And then they think they've got all the information about it. So, Right. It's no, good that's, that's, stories, that's a good but, point. It's something that, you know, people need to look into things before you just start spouting off stuff, um, you know, without knowing. So the other thing that I saw that was interesting that I wanted to talk about, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember Deborah Harrell, the woman who um, left her nine-year-old at the park while she worked at McDonald's? Yes. Well, you know, we talked about it, and we talked about this idea of, uh, what it was like in the 70s and 80s and leaving your kids at the playground or playing out in the street. And now, you know, this woman faces felony charges. To refresh everybody's memory, this is the woman that worked at McDonald's down in South Carolina. And she left her kid at a playground, which was roughly less than a mile away, uh, because she had no one to watch the kid. And the kid was coming to work with her, sitting in McDonald's, working on her laptop every day. That's how she was entertaining herself. But then due to a home invasion, somebody stole the laptop, and now the girl was just sitting in McDonald's bored to tears. And so she said to her mom, can you drop me off the playground? And the mom said, okay. Now this woman faces felony charges, and I want to talk about some of the developments in this story because you and I were kind of like on the fence. 
you know, maybe we wouldn't do that with our children, but is it a felony? So I want to just um, bring up a couple things. So here's what's, what's happened with Deborah. She obviously has an attorney, and she um, can't really afford it. I mean, I think that she's making $7.75 at McDonald's. So sure. she's raised a lot of money online, um, and people are helping her afford the attorney, which is, which is a good thing, I guess, for her. Uh, but uh, she got her job back at McDonald's, and I thought that was a, a pretty good, decent thing for McDonald's to do, to take her back yeah, in. At the very least, if not help out with the legal defense. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of companies, and, and I guess I'm speaking more of up here in the tri-state area, I know for a fact that the clients we represent, if there was an employee who was arrested and charged with a felony, that that, that individual would be fired. And regardless of this story, you know, they just wouldn't keep them around. So I think that, you know, the kudos to McDonald's down in South Carolina for giving her her job back uh, because right now she's, you know, not, uh, not been convicted. She's been charged, but... I really think that was a good thing to do to, to give her her job back and help her well, at least maintain her her you know way of life. Sure. You know, and the other thing so, I want to talk about, you know, this this woman could face ten years in jail. You believe that? <laughs> That's going to help raise that child. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, yeah, and not so much. <laughs> no, we're talking ten years in jail because under the South Carolina Code, it's sixty three dash seven dash twenty. It talks about child abuse and neglect, and um, they give these these very like anybody who reads statutes knows that there's a lot of leeway <laughs> in most of the statutes. Yeah, so, yeah. interpretation. <laughs> yeah, so this one's you know very open. Um, child abuse or neglect occurs when the parent, guardian, or other person responsible for the child's welfare inflicts or allows to be inflicted upon the child physical or mental injury, or engages in acts or omissions which present a substantial risk of physical or mental injury to the child. So this isn't just about did you injure the kid. This is about are you engaging in an act or omission which presents a substantial risk of physical or mental injury to the child. That's the crux of the charges here. They're saying this is a felony because she put this child at risk of, you know, severe or permanent injury, et cetera. So, you know, it's really going to be up to a jury to decide. But what what I've seen from this, and I'm sure you have too, Bob, stories popping up all over the place now where, Mm -hmm. you know, parents are getting arrested for putting kids in the car, for letting kids play out in the front lawn. I mean, where does it stop? I understand because I've got kids, you've got kids, we all want to protect them. But I also want to protect myself from, you know, big brother, yeah, and yeah, you know that's a that's a that's an interesting point because I know that in, in to directly to that point, there was a Florida mom that was arrested for letting her seven year old walk to the park by uh, him or himself. Yeah, and a half mile from the house, and it, like you say, nanny state, uh, <laughs> big brother. When we were kids, we literally rode our bikes eight miles to school when our parents would let us. Now, Absolutely. what's what's that what's that threshold? Of how old does someone, uh, or how old is that is that line where people are responsible enough to go on their own? 
you know, not it's the subjectivity. Like you said, you know, what's 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 the interpretation of what that parent is or isn't doing, and how do you get how do you how do you insulate yourself? Like you said, it's it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And you know what? The other factor, aside from the parent, is the kid. And the parent knows the kid better than anyone else. I have a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, and you know, a 2-year-old who's going to be 3. The 2-year-old's not going to walk to school, but the 12-year-old is certainly mature enough and more mature, in my opinion, than other kids that I've seen his age, where sure. he would be able to walk a mile. We lived in, in that sort of, uh, you know, sort of distance from the school. We'd allow him, take your cell phone. You know, as it is now, there were a couple times when we were away this, this past week um, you know, I left something in the car, and I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel. I could see the car. It was a bit away, but I could see it. He had his cell phone. I said, listen, do me a favor. Run out to the car and get my laptop. He took his cell phone. He took the car keys. I watched him. But, you know, you worry as I was doing that. I'm sitting there in the lobby thinking, wow, you know, at what point does it stop? Is someone going to say you're letting this kid walk through the parking lot alone? So it's, it's kind of, you don't know where it's stops. Yeah, and, and I, I could probably tell you story and story and story, like you probably could, of, of exactly the same situation, and listeners could as well. And that's what what is what is going to make this stop, and what is the line going to be? What when is someone going to say this is enough or this isn't enough? And that's, I guess that's the the beauty of the system and interpretation, and it's 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 good sometimes and it's bad sometimes. Yeah, you know, I'd really like to know from our listeners what they think about uh, what's going on with respect to the woman in South Carolina and where you think government should sort of stop patrolling or controlling your rights over your children. Um, and certainly, do you think that what Deborah Harrell did by leaving her kid at the, the playground uh, constitutes a felony? Would you do that? You know, but more importantly, what is your feeling on um, the government crackdown, if you want to call it that, state, federal government crackdown on leaving your kids unattended while they're playing in the front yard, backyard, in a car, that sort of thing? I'd like to hear what people have to say about that. So um, we're going to put that question up on our social media pages and on understandingthelawradio.com. It's utlradio.com. So look for that there. Uh, we'll put a poll up, and I'd like to see what people have to say. So, no, make sure we share that around the uh, the sources. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's good. And uh, my last point before I turn it over to you, Bob, and your stories uh, is I could not believe that the United States brought over two individuals who have Ebola <laughs> into a hospital that other people, normal people, it's not like a CDC hospital. It's a hospital. I, I just don't understand what's going on here uh, because for those of you who don't know, I mean, Ebola is a virus that has something like a 90% mortality rate. And what it essentially does is it causes your blood to stop clotting. So you're bleeding out of your eyes and nose and ears and you ultimately die. And most, most deaths occur within 10 to 13 days of contracting the virus. And this is like epidemic proportion where you're wiping out people if this virus spreads. I remember reading a Robin Cook book, um, not a cook book, but a Robin Cook book. 
those robins are delicious. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that before I jumped on it too quickly. <laughs> well, I this when book, prepared it, properly. <laughs> yes. It had to have been 10 years ago, and it was a book about Ebola. Because Ebola's been around, but it's such a serious, serious disease. And as far as I know, there's no known cure. So I don't understand why bring over two people with Ebola – both of whom, by the way, were given some sort of experimental either inoculation or serum or whatever you want to call it. But what about all the people that could conceivably be at risk, especially in that hospital? What do you think about that? You know, I'm, I, I'm glad you it, – it's like you have read my social media pages um, <laughs> it, verbatim, and it befuddled me in, – in, I guess let me, let me start with the other side of the point, which people have been telling me, oh, well, we're the best at this containment situation. We have all the facilities. We have all the experts. We have all the knowledge. Well, then send we over there, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. And, you know, instead of outfitting a plane specifically to carry the virus, why don't we outfit a plane to specifically carry the, carry the equipment to work on the virus, where it's at? You know, and, and people are, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're this, you're that. I'm like, well, no. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this common sense-wise. I said, you know, look back at, you know, history, and, you know, gosh and golly, the Native Americans, I'm sure, didn't appreciate a lot of the diseases that were brought to this country. Yeah. Um, it's been done before. You don't bring a, a deadly disease into an environment that doesn't have it. And it, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I could probably go on political reasons or at least my beliefs on why it was done. But it just, like you, it doesn't make sense to me why we would expose anyone more than what are already exposed by geography to this disease. Yeah, and, you know, then you look at it from a legal standpoint, if you ever, you know, put legal and Ebola in the same sentence. But first of all, most people, and it's, it's fascinating that uh, the two individuals that have the disease that are over here have not died yet. I'm not quite sure what's going on, but what I've read, some of the things I've read have been attributed to the serum that they received and that mm -hmm. possibly, you know, some benefit to it. But if you have Ebola and it goes bad and you're in a hospital, um, I would imagine in a, a public hospital, not a CDC center, it is, you know, inevitable that some, some of that virus is going to escape your plastic room, you know, your, your sealed plastic room. I, I just think that it's highly probable. And so from a legal standpoint, what sort of, of legal rights would somebody who either contracted the virus or a family member have if there's a, a leak, I don't know a better word for it, um, or an, an outbreak that occurs in this hospital? And what's interesting is this. I think you would have a tough time. A, if you contract the virus, chances are you're going to die within 10 days. So, you know, yeah, you're paying Probably won't make it to the docket. <laughs> won't make it to the docket yeah. quick enough. <laughs> but so then what about your family members? And you say, well, wait a minute. What about a wrongful death suit? Because this isn't right. But who are they going to sue? They're going to sue the hospital, which is going to be an unlikely scenario, because unless they've done something that it rises to the level of medical malpractice, they're going to have a tough time. And you know who they're never going to be able to sue? They're not going to be able to sue the CDC or the government. 
Sure. You know, and I wouldn't be surprised if behind the scenes there is some sort of arrangement or agreement between the CDC and the medical facility in Georgia so as to sort of uh, immunize the hospital from liability. I I find it hard to believe that the hospital would take on this sort of uh, risk from a health standpoint and a liability standpoint if there's not some sort of um, agreement between the government and the hospital saying, listen, if things go terribly wrong, we'll, you know, we'll hold the bag. I, uh, I, no, I, think, I think you're going. exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly so, right. I, I think everyone was on board for this decision. Yeah, and so that means that in the event of tragedy, um, those people who might not be in the vicinity, who might have a, a, a family member who have uh, contracted the virus, there'd be no legal recourse. But obviously, the more scary thing is, what if 90% of the country contracts Ebola and dies? So, you know, now we're like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. But um, I don't know. It's a very scary thing, and I am very shocked that they did it. I agree with you, Bob. Why not send all the people who are willing to go and work on these patients over there, not bring them here? It, it's very strange. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, the legal aspect is absolutely, you know, one I didn't even consider. Um, and I'm sure you're probably more on top of that than most people because that's what you do. Um, from a common sense point standpoint, someone had mentioned to me, what if it was your child? I said, well, let me look at Let me tell you this. If it were my child, I would have to make the decision of, A, I go there and try to remedy the situation, or, B, I bring the child into my home and expose everyone in my family. I hope the answer is A. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's it, it, I mean, I, I you know, in, 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 in everything, you know, I hope everything turns out all right. But I think it was a, 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 a reckless decision and people will disagree and people will agree. And and it is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's very frightening, at least in my mind. It's very frightening. And I certainly uh, will hold my breath as I drive through Georgia the next time. <laughs> and that's one of those long states too dang it <laughs> yeah it is so there's no bathroom breaks when the kids go through georgia everybody hold it, everybody hold it. <laughs> and don't go through atlanta during the day speaking of sharing you have a story about sharing for us <laughs> oh absolutely and all sorts and even holding your breath um, Colorado's man- marijuana edible manufacturers are facing some tougher rules, according to the Denver Post. Colorado, as you know, recreational marijuana, now legal, and the edible manufacturers face some tougher rules on potency, serving size, and packaging of their products under some stopgap rules adopted by state regulators on Thursday. The new guidelines, crafted in response to concerns about overconsumption by inexperienced consumers, will do away with bite-sized products that pack in 100 milligrams of the psychoactive chemical THC, the maximum allowed by state law. Products still may contain up to 100 milligrams of THC, but they must be easily broken off into pieces that you can share that have only 10 milligrams or fewer the standardized edible serving size under state law. And another change, manufacturers also will be required to put single-serving edibles in, ta-da, child-resistant packaging before shipping them to stores instead of relying on the stores to provide the packaging as customers leave with their purchases. The rule is going into effect November 1st. Um, That's a novel idea, by the way. (laughs) Didn't see that one coming. (laughs) You know, if you look at the... Reese's and M&M's and all those guys, they all have the share size packages now. Well, apparently not such a good idea in Colorado. 
you know, I knew this was coming. We knew it was coming, and it's going to continue to develop because the idea of generating millions and millions of dollars of revenue uh, is so appealing to states. They're not going to now go back and say, well, you know, there's a lot of people that are dying from eating uh, you know, far too many brownies. Uh, they're just going to make laws. That's how it's going to go, and it will be uh, an ongoing regulatory development there's going to be all sorts of new laws in place. There's going to be laws on what you can sell, how you can sell packaging um, requirements about what's in the product. I mean, it's going to be, you know, like the hostess of marijuana. Check on the box and, and see how many calories you're consuming. You know, that sort of thing. But that's where it's going to go. Every time there's a new product or a new idea, think back to the Internet. How many years was it primarily unregulated before everybody and their brother jumped on the regulation bandwagon. And that's the same thing that's going to happen here with marijuana. You know, let's regulate Is there a long-term long legal issue when it comes to, hey, you guys didn't tell us at first this was going to happen. Now you're telling me it did happen, and so you're liable. Well, I think that there's going to be that general sort of, well, listen, you're stupid enough to use marijuana argument. I think that's what it's going to come down to. You know what you're going to Baby people Colorado just won't for. care. Yeah. I think it's going to be, listen, you're not here for the skiing, and if you are here for the skiing, it's high skiing, and you, you use it at your own risk. What I do think is going to happen, though, is I think that um, you're going to see a lot of the resellers of marijuana with all sorts of disclaimers. I'm sure that there's a lot of them out there already, but from a legal standpoint, what's interesting is you've got the legislature, who is going to be passing all these rules and writing all these bills, so they're going to be busy. Then you have the lawyers out in Colorado, who quite honestly should be jumping for joy if you're a business lawyer in Colorado, because imagine how you can um, approach your clients out there who are selling marijuana and, and talk to them about, you know, make sure that you are protected beyond what the law is. Make sure you have disclaimers about the use of marijuana. You know, if you hand somebody a pamphlet that says, by the way, using marijuana can be harmful, like when you go to the drugstore and you get that pamphlet that says, you know, the medication you're, you're taking can turn your hands oh, purple, sure. it can make you die, don't go in the sun, don't breathe. You know, that's the same thing. <laughs> At least you can go back and say, well, they gave you a warning. Same thing here. So Colorado lawyers rejoice because you can really go after and sort of um, help your business clients protect themselves. So I think you're going to see not only regulation through the government, but I think you're going to see a lot of legal developments on the individual business basis um, to kind of protect these, these merchants from claims of marijuana. I still, and I don't know what you think, Bob, but I still worry and wonder about the impact of marijuana on young kids driving vehicles in Colorado. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's uh and you're going to have a lot of states sitting back and watching and see what happens with Colorado and, and learn from their mistakes because I think we had said it before, this is something that's not going away. It's only going to get bigger and I'll say better with the terms to what the legal guidelines are. Yeah. Yeah, I really think that it, what, what, what the shining uh, jewel of all this is is the money at the end of the day. This is such a massive payday from a product that takes very little money to grow and to produce. So I think it's going to be very hard for states to look at this and say, wow, this isn't something we should do. 
And then the flip of that, right, is what does the federal government do if that happens? Because even though it's legal in Colorado, it's still a violation of federal law. Marijuana is not legal under federal law, even though it's legal under Colorado state law. So when more states adopt the marijuana legalization, what's the federal government going to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. <laughs> well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Because well, I, sure, I have no idea. You know what's interesting, though, is the federal government comes and, and you know, they're, they're going to pass this law, and they're going to maintain it throughout the years, and marijuana is illegal. However, we will take your tax dollars for that marijuana sale, you know, that's legal in your state. So obviously they're not going to turn down the money, but they're not right now going to go so far as to say it's legal. But let's see what happens as more states legalize marijuana. Sure, that's a good point, yeah. And actually, speaking of sharing, um, this is something that actually I think you probably look at it more from a small business standpoint because of the way that people use references. student could get eight years for sharing a paper online. According to Newser.com, a grad student in Columbia, of all places, says he just wanted to help other researchers and the endangered amphibians they study. He could get up to eight years in prison for copyright infringement after sharing a research paper he found online. Diego Gomez, 26, posted the paper on a file-sharing site and is being prosecuted under tough copyright laws introduced as part of Columbia's 2006 free trade agreement with the U.S., even though the author was, author was credited and the work was already online, the other academics filed a complaint for violation of economic rights and related rights. Gomez saying he was shocked to find out that the knowledge in biological sciences, which generally do not obey the market logic, is considered similar to software for an artistic work or commercial exploitation. Now, the case is showing the real-life harm, according to Maria Sutton at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, of overreaching restrictions due to excessive laws that protect the economic rights of authors. Now, this guy is only one of countless thousands who risk themselves every day to push against prohibitive restraints of copyright. I mean, when you're a small business, how many times do you go and, I want to say borrow, um, but republish, and even people every day on Facebook republishing things for entertainment purposes? Where's the, where does the law sit there? And I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't someone profiting off of this prior work well you know it's it's a very interesting case now obviously i'm not well versed in columbia law colombian law um <laughs> but i know that if this were a u.s based case this would not result in in any sort of prison or you know criminal um implications this would be mm -hmm. strictly um a a civil case and there would be injunctive relief and i would venture to say that due to the nature of what the individual is sharing here that it would probably just go away with an injunction in place um, and, you know, a, a very hard warning, maybe, maybe some nominal money um, being requested. But I don't think it would be as big as it is here. But to answer your question, you know, you're, you're right. It's very easy for businesses and, and not only small but mid-sized businesses to go on the, in the Internet and pick up something and sort of, slightly tweak it, recycle it, or copy it all together, and it, it becomes uh, a possible infringing use. But this is not an easy question to answer because you have to look at whether or not you, there's actual infringement of the copyright. So, for example, you know when you go onto a news site and there's that share button, share oh, yeah, Facebook point, or Twitter? Point. They're, yeah, point. They're, in, 
yeah, they're inviting you to share that content. Um, and they invite you to do so because when you share it, if you notice, it'll pop up with, let's say it's CNN, it'll pop up with the CNN link, the CNN logo, and the person who is receiving the forwarded information, they know that it came from you, but ultimately from CNN. So sure. in those cases, there's no infringement. The company that holds the ownership of that copyright is inviting you to share the content. So that's one thing. Now, if you take that story and republish it as your own story, is that infringement? And the answer is yes. But something interesting with U.S. copyright law, when you file a copyright, um, well, let me take a step back. When is a copyright created? Do you know, do you know Bob? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that's a very good question because being in the music industry, I've been told a couple different things. So I'm, I've been told some some. Uh, it's called a poor man's copyright is when you write a piece of music, put it in an envelope, have it sealed and certified, and send it to yourself and don't open it. Right. But, uh, I, when, when does it really start? That's a good question because I don't know. All right, so here's the answer. The minute you put pen to paper, you have created copyright protection for your work. It's sort of a, a fallacy that the uh, mailing to yourself creates the copyright. Oh. What the mailing to yourself does is helps you establish – the creation date of the publication. So, okay. you know, in the, in the music world, if you're, you know, writing, handwriting, right, like with a pencil, who uses a pencil mm -hmm. anymore? But when you're writing music <laughs> or lyrics or something and you're putting it down on paper, people would often send it to themselves because they want to be able to show that that's when they created the content. Nowadays, everything is a digital stamp to it. So if you write something uh, on, on a word processing program, you're going to get a digital stamp. We can see when that was put out there. Oftentimes, there'll be posts on social media and whatnot. But um, the answer to the question is, once you write it down, you have created copyright claim. You have ownership of what you've written. However, in order to sue for copyright infringement and to collect damages, you have to file your works with the U.S. Copyright Office. And the fee ah. is somewhere around $350 um, give or take, for each copy written piece of material. Now imagine wow. every time you write a news story, are you going to go and have that news story copy, copyright protected? The answer is no. Sure. Right. You know, when you're a student and you write a paper, uh, are you going to then go out and have that copyright protected? Now, obviously, the distinction is once you write it, you've got copyright protection. But if you don't file it with the Copyright Office, then you cannot sue for damages. So what does that mean? That means that you can't sue for money. You can't say, you, you infringed on my copyright, and you sold X amount of papers, and therefore I'm entitled to all that lost revenue. If you haven't filed your copyright application, your, your claim, you can't do so. You can get injunctive relief. So you can get a court order that says, right, hey, listen, you've got to stop doing this. That you can obtain, and that's relatively easy to do. We do that a lot for our corporate clients who you know, put a lot of content out there, and they don't have the ability, nor it's just completely impractical, to file everything you do with the Copyright Office. So. You know, that's the, the understanding of copyright law. If you want to sue for damages, you have to have it filed with the U.S. Copyright Office. 
in this case with this um, this kid, you know, it's it's up in the air, and there's not enough facts here to know. Is this something that was filed? Is it actionable? Can they recover uh, monetary damages for it? But this really highlights the importance of being very careful online. You know where we see this a lot is a lot of our photography clients. They have photos posted, right? And it's so easy. You right-click and you download the photo. So easy to steal photos. And uh, what you're really doing is you're you're kind of uh, playing a crafts game because the day that that photographer realizes you're using their image without their uh, permission, they're going to file a claim, or they should file a claim at the very least. Um, and, and you're waiting for that photographer to find out that you're using, without permission, that image. And, you know, some uh, people, yeah. they, they, they get away with it all their lives. Um, and others, we had a, a guy that was on the show not too long ago, somebody that I follow on YouTube um, from Cigar Obsession, Brian Glynn, who's a photographer down in Florida. And Brian takes a lot of wedding photography, but also does commercial work and shares a love of cigars. Uh, he photographs cigars for companies, and he was taking okay. pictures of the cigars, and a lot of these companies that also were competitors were stealing his pictures. <laughs> and, you know, he says it's a very common problem in the industry. Uh, even though the cigar world is, is relatively small and everybody knows everybody, um, you know, it's something that he had to deal with and send out cease and desist letters. But photographers and musicians. Musicians are a little bit different, especially if you're writing lyrics. But photographers, they take a lot of pictures. They're not going to have every image copyright protected. So injunctive relief, yes. Monetary damages, no, unless you filed it with the U.S. Copyright Office. There you go. If you want, you're protected, but just you're not going to make any money. Right. Um, more international news. Microsoft must give U.S. prosecutors customer emails stored on servers in Ireland, according to a federal judge. federal judge in Manhattan upholding a magistrate's ruling requiring Microsoft to give federal prosecutors emails and other data stored on servers in Ireland. Chief U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska ruling on Thursday that Microsoft had to comply with the U.S. warrant because it controlled the data. She's saying that it's a question of control, not a question of the location of the information. She cited a 1984 case that required businesses to disclose business records no matter where they are held, according to the Washington Post. So Congress was aware of the decision when it passed the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act, so the law implicitly authorizes overseas production of data. Microsoft arguing that they could not be forced to turn over the emails unless the government obtained them through a legal treaty, according to the Wall Street Journal, but Preska said that any intrusion on a foreign sovereignty is incidental at best. Uh, they, of course, are going to appeal promptly. <laughs> well, they're trying to protect something, and you've got this probably more now than ever with companies in offshore um, headquarters for tax reasons. Um, is, is this just going to be an email thing, or is this going to be an all-records thing? I think really what you're you're looking at is you're looking at a a shift from 1970s and 80s America, corporate America, where you had the offshore accounts that people were funneling money into for tax reasons. Um, You know, you didn't see a lot of companies storing information, storing data overseas. Now that we live in more of a global community, 
Uh, it's so much easier to outsource work to other, company, uh, other countries, to store data on servers located in other countries. So I think that the, the boundaries of, of business have just expanded into this global community that it's something that we're going to see all the time. I think Microsoft is going to have a hard time appealing this decision because it is about ownership. It's ownership of the records. If they're Microsoft records, the fact that they live on a server in Ireland really shouldn't have any impact. So I think that the judge um, made a good decision here. I think that obviously Microsoft is powerful and they have a lot of lawyers and a lot of money to spend appealing this. Um, and if there's some sort of erroneous um, reliance on a law, they'll catch it. But in general... I think that this is something that every business owner, small, medium, or large, should expect. If you control the data, it's yours. The fact that it's overseas makes no difference. You know, it's like if you own a business in the U.S., you're in, in a small town in New Jersey or New York, and you store your records in a storage facility the next town over, right? You expect that if there's a subpoena, that you'll go to that next town over and produce the document. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're just, yeah, we're, we're just moving into a global community, and so Ireland servers become that storage facility in the next town over. That's how I view it. Now, now does the United States put itself at a disadvantage if you've got companies like Microsoft, Apple, AT&T, Verizon, whomever? Um, do they put themselves at a disadvantage where – a United States court may require that they produce documents where a Chinese government may not require well, someone to pull things from foreign market. That's interesting because you're talking about China, and China is a completely different animal. It is oh, yeah. nearly impossible to bring a lawsuit against an individual or a corporation in China. Nearly impossible. Uh, even through the Hague Convention, it is so difficult um, we were dealing a while back with uh, designers, uh, architectural lighting designers. And I had done a, an article for Architectural Lighting Magazine about uh, maybe eight months ago. And that question was specifically addressed, and the answer to that question was addressed. When you go into a country like China and you try to sue them for infringement, good luck. Good luck because they don't <laughs> recognize the U.S. courts of law. There's no treaty that allows us to go over there and to sue someone in China. So it would be interesting to see if these companies started storing data over in China, what sort of impact that would have. But still, the data is owned by the U.S. corporation. The data in this case is owned by Microsoft. So it's not as though there'd be any legal action in Ireland other than perhaps um, – you know, maybe a subpoena, because the, the company in Ireland, they're going to do what the owner of the data says, and if they do get a, a subpoena, I think it will be dealt with over here in the U.S. I think that Microsoft's going to have to deal with it here. It's not going to be a battle that they fight in Ireland. It'll be a battle they fight here. Um, mm -hmm. But interesting with, with China. I don't know how that would play out, because certainly if you own the data and it was being warehoused in China, I would say you still have an obligation to comply with U.S. law and produce it regardless of where it's stored, but you might get greater protection in China. 
And if things continue to deteriorate in Russia, um, maybe you'd want to store it there, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it all depends on the geopolitical slope. Um, yep. And just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you know, you talk about outsourcing of tech of records and, and such in different uh, places around the world. Jesse Jackson saying tech diversity is his next civil rights step. U.S. civil rights leader Jesse Jackson calling on the Obama administration Monday to scrutinize the tech industry's lack of diversity. The government has a role to play, he says, in ensuring that women and minorities are fairly represented in the tech workforce, Jackson told the USA Today editorial board meeting. He said that the U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission, uh, excuse me, Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission, needs to examine Silicon Valley's employment contracts. Now, he says there's no talent shortage, there's an opportunity shortage, calling Silicon Valley far worse than many others, such as car makers, that have been pressured by unions. He said tech behemoths have largely escaped scrutiny by a public dazzled by their cutting-edge gadget. He says he he has uh, lobbied nearly two dozen tech companies to disclose hiring data, and about a dozen have done so. The result he is seeing is that men make up 62 to 70% of the staffs of Twitter, Google, Facebook, Yahoo, and LinkedIn, while whites and Asians comprise 88 to 91%, according to company data released in the past two months. Uh, next month, Jackson Group's uh, planning to file a Freedom of Information request with the EEOC to acquire employment data from companies that have not yet disclosed it publicly. You know, you've get you've got a lot of cheap labor here, and you've got a worldwide marketplace now. And is is he even considering the fact that these companies are offshoring as well as onshoring, and any efforts to continue to onshore employment is going to lead to a greater offshore issue. You know, there's, there's so many facets to this. First of all, you know, everybody loves Jesse Jackson, but I, I don't know what he's doing here. This is, this, in my opinion, is the wrong cause to try to, uh, to champion because you're right. This is expanded into a global marketplace. And yes, there's talent here. I'm not going to deny that. And, and, you know, it comes down to, why do companies outsource to begin with? The primary reason for outsourcing, primary reason, is affordability. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. They, they, they will go overseas. They'll go to um, Asian countries. They'll go to Indian communities or countries because the, the cost of living is different. What these people expect as an hourly wage is different. You know, it wasn't too long ago, and I'm not 100% sure of my facts, but somewhere out in Washington State, I thought I remembered seeing that they increased the um, minimum wage to some double-digit figure like 12 or 13 or $14. In, in and, Seattle, Washington, you're absolutely yeah. correct. Now, you know, when you look at a small or mid-sized business trying to hire somebody at 12 to $14 an hour on a minimum wage basis, maybe you can afford one employee, but you're not going to be able to afford the staff you need to help you run your business. And so that sort of everyone wants more mentality creates a lot of trouble because how can small businesses, you know, not, not forget about thrive. How can you even um, continue to go on a daily basis when you're dealing with minimum wage laws that are so high? So they outsource. They go to countries that have good talent, people that have 
um, abilities in, in the tech field, and they outsource. That's why they do it. Now, And I deal with it I, every day. Uh, I, I use some contracting sites for, for my studio, and I can't compete in, let's say, video arts with someone from Pakistan or the Philippines. They can get the same exact training. They can get the same exact equipment, but their rates are 20 times, 30 times less. Than what I would pay, than what I would charge someone to do the same job, and they do a fine job. There's nothing wrong with the work they do. It's it's like what you'd said about their 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 standard of living is so much more different than ours. You know, you can't help but not go to that that lowest cost source. Yeah, and so I, I think that um, the idea of well, Tech Valley, you know, Silicon Valley, Google, it's primarily whites and Asians. I don't understand. There is a stereotype out there about Asians and technology and Indians and technology. I don't understand the stereotype. I don't know why it is. There's got to be a real legitimate reason why people in Asian countries and uh, people in India or Pakistan have a very good or are perceived to have a very good understanding of tech. Um, but it is. It's, I, don't, I don't think that it's necessarily... Um, a negative stereotype. The fact is, is that people in China, uh, people in in the Philippines, in India and Pakistan, they do have a very good understanding of tech, and so it just so happens that that's where people outsource from. I mean, I, I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it. We're not really outsourcing to Guatemala for tech, but we are doing it over in India. Um, and I don't know if it's just what those cultures study now as kids grow up and go through school. Um, but the fact is here, how can you tell a company that you can't hire, an, you can't outsource, you've got to hire here? I understand the Buy American, and I, I get that, but this is a different world. This is a completely different world. So oh, I absolutely. Yeah, no, it's... it's... Yeah, it's, and even myself in my own business, I've decided that I don't do video anymore. It's not cost-effective to me. I stick with what I can do here that, they, that someone can outsource. If you want someone to speak English, chances are you're going to go to where they speak English. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's us. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, 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 it's understanding, like what you had said, understanding what the market is and saying, if I'm going to position myself, I better position myself as, as a supplier in a stable market that I can at least expect to demand a wage that is acceptable to work in. Yeah. So, I mean, look, would I like to see all work being kept in America and that whole, you know, Midwestern philosophy? Sure. Make the country stronger. That's great. Is it going to happen? No, it will never happen again because the cost of living in the United States in general is high where I live. It's ridiculous. It's so absurd how much money it costs to live you know, New York, New Jersey, it's ridiculous beyond belief. Um, and, and then you've got states like Washington adopting these extremely high minimum wage laws. It's just not, it's not doable. It's not feasible. You know, do you want to, as an employer, pay your employees more and more and more to reward them for doing a good job? And the answer is clearly yes, you do. Can you afford it? And oftentimes that answer is no. And so now Jesse Jackson is going to come in and tell small businesses that you can't outsource? Or is Jesse Jackson just going to focus on the big players in the tech world like Google? And if so, I cannot see Jesse Jackson winning against Google 
because Google employs a ton of Americans. And now you can't go his, and go ahead, Bob. His angle, I think, his angle, I think, is going to be, in, in my belief, is hey, if you don't start hiring minorities, if you don't start hiring women, we're going to boycott your products. Well, you know, that's a nice thought in theory, but good luck because <laughs> everybody's going to stop going on Google. Is Jesse Jackson going to come up with his own search engine? So, you know what? It's, it's, it's an interesting idea. Years ago, I worked on Wall Street, and I worked at a firm where we represented a major automobile manufacturer based in the United States. And when the, an audit was done and the company came in, and the big company higher-ups came in, they wanted to see the number of minorities uh, and women who were assigned to files for their company because their um, stand, standard was on, built on diversity. So when they yeah. came in and they looked at what the firm was doing, they determined that there were not a sufficient number of minorities or women working on the files, and they pulled the files, not because of poor work, but solely because of this diversity issue. And the firm that I was working at, you know, they were shocked. And then all of a sudden you see that they, they had this hiring, um, um, you know, blitz. And they brought in all, all these minority uh, and women workers solely to protect themselves from having that happen again. But that's one company who says, hey, listen, we're, we're built on the principles of America, but diversity. That's different. One company saying, I'm going to pull my files away because you're not diverse enough. This is crazy, Jesse Jackson saying, Google, bring in more you know, um, minorities, uh, bring in more women. I, I, I don't see it happening at all. I, I think that he's barking up the wrong tree. It'll be interesting to see what him and his, uh, his, his uh, coalition uh, produce in results, that's for sure. He must be very bored. I mean, there must not be much <laughs> he can do right now. You know, or he's just trying to stay relevant. I was just going to he's, he's I, I, I probably at one point in time, I think his, and it's probably even splits it today, and I shouldn't even be saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. His, his heart was probably in the right place at one, t- at one time, but I think now it's gotten to the point where keeping himself relevant is part of the message. I agree. I think that Jesse Jackson was a, was a, a very good man with a good message who tried to positively influence the lives of minorities. And I think that he was a champion and did a good job. But I think now he just, like you, like we were saying, he wants to stay relevant. So how better to stay relevant than to go after Google? Because you know darn well that when you're going after Google, you're going to be number one in the search engine list because, you know, you're suing Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's- it said that he he doesn't know when he, he needs a fight. That's his problem. So in yep. my eyes, yep, yep. So, um, well, speaking of fights, obviously we had a little legal fight in the last. Well, it's been a while, last couple of years, but finally came to wraps somewhat with the Hobby Lobby ruling. Well, the slippery slippery slope has been achieved. A satanic temple citing the Hobby Lobby ruling to fight abortion laws, according to FindLaw.com. The expansion of religious liberties under the Supreme Court's recent Hobby Lobby ruling has found a new home with Satanists. Uh, you know, I said, Satan, I was looking for a little effect there, Saturday Night Lifestyle, <laughs> who are hoping to use the decision to defeat certain abortion laws. The Satanic Temple, TST, believing that the human body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. 
reporting to the Huff, reporting by the uh, Huffington Post. TST beginning a campaign to defeat abortion laws that require a woman to read informational materials which critics claim are designed to dissuade a woman from terminating her pregnancy. The temple is using the recent Hobby Lobby case to do it. Last Monday, it launched a national campaign against abortion, informed consent laws. Not against abortion, against informed consent, citing the Supreme Court's decision. Now, (laughs) the Hobby Lobby ruling saying that closely held corporations had religious rights under the First Amendment, TST saying they're on that game. They're wishing um, to use the ruling in order to help women obtain abortions, if they so choose, without having to be warned under state-mandated protocols. Basically what they're saying is these, uh, the counseling that you have, apparently according to some state laws that you have to participate in, is unconstitutional. Saying that Satanists are not alone in protesting these kinds of informed consent laws. States like South Dakota, opponents fought and lost to keep women from being warned that they faced the risk of suicide after seeking an abortion. Um, is this... I don't want it, it, it looks like the slippery slope, but is it really the slippery slope? I mean, is this what we can expect time and time again from companies, from religions, to say everything they can and throw it against the wall to see what sticks? Well, I think you are going to see more arguments arising out of the Hobby Lobby decision, but let's take a step back because I want to remind our listeners that Lucian Greaves was a scheduled guest on our Thursday program. And he was supposed oh. to come on. Oh yes, he was supposed to come on and talk about the statue, uh, the goat-headed satanic statue that they were trying to place um, within the Oklahoma State Capitol. Uh, right. What had what had happened was Oklahoma said, "All right, listen. Any religion, as long as you fund it, you can place your monument here." And so, cross or a Torah or whatever it was. And then the Satanists decided, hey, we're going to build this statue of, a statue of their, their goat-headed... I, I don't know how you pronounce the guy's name. It's like Behezimuth or something like that. Hmm. And they, they, they spent something like $30,000 on this statue of the goat-headed guy with two children under his hands, and you could sit on his lap. And, you know, it was um, a real statue that they created. And we were going to have him on because... I thought that it was actually an interesting argument that you can't open it up, if you're Oklahoma, you can't open it up and say, everybody, as long as you pay for it, put your own religious article on the state property, and then say, well, wait a minute, we didn't realize that a Satanist group was going to want to put something up. So I actually thought it was a good argument that they had. I thought that the uh, state of Oklahoma made a mistake. I think that the, you know, not the state of of, of Oklahoma, I think it was Oklahoma City. Um, I think they made a mistake in saying every religion brings something to the table. As long as you pay for it, you can display it. But he never called in. Lucian never called in to discuss this. I apparently understand now why he's very busy uh, doing other things. So this case that he's now championing... The idea of um, informed consent is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Whether you are pro or anti-abortion, the fact is that informed consent is necessary because if you're in a state that allows abortion uh, and it, it has lower restrictions on age and that sort of thing, I think it's very important that younger people 
and maybe some people who are less educated than others are told of a potential side effects and consequences of their, their decision. So this has nothing to do with pro or anti-abortion rights. I'm, I'm not even going to discuss that. What I want to discuss, though, is informed consent. When you go in for surgery and they tell you, listen, I think this procedure will go well, but, you know, it's surgery, and with every surgery there are inherent risks, and just so you know, you could die. Yeah, I know that, and I'm used to them saying that, but wouldn't you rather have that being said than being surprised when you don't wake up, you know? Well, it depends on what your agenda is. If you don't want to educate people, about the risks of this, that, or the other thing, then I think you would want to do away with informed consent. Wouldn't you I, believe I don't, Yeah, I don't understand, though, the whole informed consent debate because as a lawyer, uh, I'm, I'm advising my clients who might be in the medical profession, have, have more that you give to your patients. Explain to them what you can and can't do for them because it protects you. So take, for example, uh, there's a therapy group that we represent, uh, and these therapists are dealing with troubled teens, uh, drug use and alcoholism and family problems. Isn't it better for my client to have a document that they hand out to the patients and they explain, here's what you're coming to us for, here's what we can do, and here are the limitations of what we can do? Because, God forbid, you have no limitations explained, and someone goes in there as a kid, troubled kid, who ultimately ends up killing himself or ODs on drugs, is it fair that the therapy company should be sued when they've done nothing wrong other than you didn't protect him from killing himself? No, it's not fair. So informed consent doesn't say you can't have an abortion. It says you should know the inherent risks. I think that in, in, informed consent is a good thing across the board. I don't know of a negative, uh, you know, connotation here with it, I, unless I'm missing something. And I think that uh, Lucian should have called in when I sort of agreed with his position about the statue, but now he has not, and he's picked up an issue that I have uh, the exact opposite view of, so... <laughs> That's <all I> <laughs> well, <laughs> way to go, Lucian! You did it this time. Um, you know, when you talk about you know the the, uh, the informed consent and surgery, and this is just this isn't giving a play on that law, but it does play on this particular case. Alabama man's penis amputated by mistake. Lawsuit claiming apparently this wasn't disclosed to him. Um, an Alabama man claiming he woke up at a hospital to find that his penis had been amputated, but all that he wanted was a circumcision. Johnny Lee Banks, Jr., 56, filing a lawsuit alleging that Princeton Baptist Medical Center in Birmingham never told him why it was, quote-unquote, necessary to remove his penis. According to Reuters, spokesman for the center denied the merit of his claims, but by all accounts, he's still missing one member. His amputation lawsuit names several defendants, the medical center itself, the urology centers of Alabama, the Simon Williamson Clinic, and two doctors. Along with the medical institutions, the doctors have insisted that Banks' circumcision gone wrong. Allegations are completely untrue. The attorney representing the two doctors told AboutLaw.com that his, this suit is simply an unfair attempt to damage the reputation of dedicated physicians and an outstanding clinic which claims that are 
basically completely false. Now, if he truly did consent to a circumcision and doctors had not informed him of the issue, here you got informed consent for an amputation, this could be fertile ground for a uh, malpractice suit. Banks still waiting on medical records to provide some explanation as to how and why this happened. Um, not a lot of information as far as why it happened, but as far as where's the line drawn here, I mean, everybody goes to the hospital, everybody has procedures done, but my question on this, although the hilarity of the story is obvious, it took a little more, more than a little off the top on this one, but where, <laughs> where does the line stop when you go in for a procedure and you come out with something completely different, and did you consent to something you weren't aware of? Yeah, well... We know that Johnny Lee Banks certainly got the short end of the stick. And, um, <laughs> All right, there you go. Couldn't help it. We'll have to talk about roles here. <laughs> I apologize I didn't get on that one to begin with. <laughs> anyway. So here's the deal with this, right? Um, if, if you can prove that as a doctor – uh, a doctor, another doctor, in or under reasonable circumstances, the same reasonable circumstances, would not have done what they did. Uh, then you can probably prove malpractice. I mean, essentially, you need to have another doctor come in and say what this doctor did was improper. Here's why. And you need to be able to present that proof to the court in order to be successful on a malpractice claim. We don't know here what Johnny Lee's story is. We don't know if he happened to have a very tiny member and when uh, you know, the circumcision was completed, it, it looked smaller than what it was. I, I, you know, I, I, this is very interesting because you, know, you would think that he would have more information about, hey, look, uh, my penis is missing. Um, you know, how do I urinate? Wh- what did you do here? I, mean, I don't think this was like a Lorena Bobbitt operation. I think that they probably did something, um, but whether or not they actually cut off his penis is, uh, I, I think, questionable. I think that more likely than not, poor Johnny Lee was not endowed with the gift of size, and when they removed the skin, um, you know, he had a, 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 a little not thing, a, I, you know? Yeah, not a whole lot going on. I just don't think so. I think he's just mad. I mean, maybe he should see a yeah, plastic well. surgeon. But, you know, in all seriousness, though, in the event that they actually did, because there are doctors that amputate the wrong leg or the wrong foot, and that happens often, um, you know, too often for my liking, but it happens, then you might have a malpractice claim. So, you know, while, unfortunately, Johnny, I was laughing at the, the situation, I'm not laughing at you because if it really did happen, then you should seek a lawyer out to help you uh, formulate a malpractice case. And if you didn't, um, I have no advice for you. I mean, if they didn't cut it off and it's just small, there's really nothing I can do for you. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's probably not, like what you said with the doctors uh, understanding what, what was done and why it was done. And even is there a situation where during procedure do doctors pull that question and is that – uh, when you go into court, you have to say, hey, you know what, Doc, at the time of the situation, did you double-check yourself? Is that, is that something they have to worry about when it comes back on? I mean, did they have to go out and get a second opinion, per se? 
uh, to insulate themselves later on? Well, you know, they typically do. If you actually, actually watch surgical procedures, oftentimes um, they will draw on the leg or I, I had my hip, uh, I had a total hip replacement. And when I went into uh, the surgery, my hip, my, my right buttock, everything was marked up so they knew exactly what they were doing. They wrote on my knee so they knew what hip was being replaced. Uh, and I saw this before I went under. And so, you know, I think that it's standard procedure with good doctors to want to double check what they're doing. And everybody on the team, on the surgical team, knows here's what we're doing today. We are going to replace a right hip. Um, I would imagine that every doctor in surgical practice is going to have some level of checks and balances because you're in there with a team, with a surgical team. Whether you have a doctor assisting you or whether you have nurses or um, you know, other people in there to help you, if they're all going in for a circumcision, somebody's going to say, uh, doctor, I hate to interrupt you, but I don't think you're supposed to cut it off. I think you're supposed to perform a circumcision. I think that level of checks and balances is there. Accidents do happen, and people are inattentive because they are people, but uh, I think it's there. And I think for the most part, the amount of stories that we hear on a monthly or annual basis of doctors performing surgeries and doing the wrong thing, um, performing surgery on the wrong, they're, they're few and far between. I don't think it's a common occurrence. I think it's sure. interesting when you see these things pop up in the news, but we're not seeing them every day. <laughs> thank, you, thank you again for that play on words. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, well, playing on words in Seattle, getting a cop possibly in trouble, Seattle swaps an anti-pot cop who has issued 80% of the marijuana tickets in the area. Seattle police officer has been reassigned after a review of police records found the officer had written 80% of the marijuana citations issued in the city so far this year. You know, and this goes back to what you were talking about, state and federal, and what that law particularly, particularly states. The officer was even adding notes to the back of some of the citations, including one which he voiced his opinion that Washington's marijuana legalization laws were silly. Now, pot is legal in Washington State. Why are pot smokers still being studied, or excuse me, still being cited? According to Seattle Police, 66 of the 83 citations for public pot use so far in 2014 were written by the one officer. Now, here's the problem. Although Washington State legalized the possession and sale of marijuana for recreational purposes in 2012, it still remains against the law to smoke it in public. That's where people are getting confused, and possibly with good reason. Same is true in Colorado, where recreational marijuana is also legal under state law, but not for public consumption. In Seattle, the fine for public consumption is 27 bucks. In addition, Washington pot users must also refrain from growing their own Although it is legal to purchase dried marijuana from state-sanctioned retailers, licensed growers are permitted to have live marijuana plants. So now you've got that same thing that you said, you know, that ambiguity in the law. Hey, yeah, you can have it, but don't use it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, let's look at the cop for a second. We used to represent a lot of um, the police departments. And um, while most officers were there to do a good job, there was always that one renegade that had his own agenda or her own agenda um, and it sounds to me like this officer has that agenda in mind. I don't like marijuana, and therefore I'm going to make sure that I 
um, sort of sort of champion the anti-smoking in public uh, <laughs> policy. Now, if this officer really did catch all these people smoking in public and he's enforcing the law, then he's doing his job, and I could right. criticize him because you're right that it's not permissible in Oklahoma or Washington to smoke in public. You can buy it, you can go home, you can sit on your couch, and you can smoke as much as you want, but you can't do it out in public. And there's that's, that's the same way with a lot of states that have um, alcohol laws where you can't drink. I, I was open. just going to say, yeah, same yeah. thing with alcohol, open intoxicant, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's no different. And anyone who's out there smoking marijuana in public, you're stupid. Go home and do it. Don't do it out in public. Uh, it's the same as, as people that come to work high and then they wonder and worry, uh, you know, why are you firing me in Oklahoma? Because it's legal. I can smoke it all. Uh, Colorado, not Oklahoma. Colorado, I can smoke it all I want. I, I, you know, it's legal. Well, it's not legal. If you come to work and your employer has an anti-drug policy, regardless of the fact that marijuana is legal in, in Colorado, it doesn't mean that you can come to work high. Uh, doesn't mean that you can smoke marijuana out in public. So they reassigned the cop, but, you know, we don't know. Did he do the right thing, or was he just, you know, catching people as they were exiting marijuana stores and saying, hey, I saw you smoke that in public? We don't know, but that's my well, take like on he's, he's not, he's, It's not that he's not doing his job. He's that's just for a little sure. aggressive. Very. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the pot smokers are probably just paranoid anyway. Good one, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy doesn't get the jerk of the week award though peter um jesse ventura not a lot of people happy with him he won a 1.8 million dollar award in a defamation lawsuit against a dead ex-seal sniper it was a lawsuit pitting two larger-than-life personalities against each other, former pro wrestler Jesse the Body Ventura, also one-time Minnesota governor, and ex-Navy SEAL sniper Chris Kyle. On Tuesday, Ventura won uh, a federal judgment in Minnesota, awarding him more than $1.8 million, deciding that Kyle's 2012 best-selling autobiography, American Sniper, defamed him. Ventura saying, I don't feel great. I mean, I feel good over the fact that I've been vindicated, and now they know the story was not true. It was fabricated from day one, Ventura told the CNN affiliate WCCO. The suit centered on a passage in which Kyle described fighting with a man in a California bar in 2006 during the wake for SEAL Mike Monsoor, who was killed in Iraq during 2006. Kyle wrote that he hit the man after he said that the SEALs deserve to lose a few. In later interviews, Kyle said that he was referring to Ventura as the man that he hit. In the suit, Ventura denied making the statements in the book. Ventura filed the suit before Kyle's death. He didn't sue him when he was dead, according to the New York Times. In his deposition in 2012, Kyle continued to insist his book is accurate, describing the clash with Ventura while some are blasting Ventura on social media because they feel Ventura's actions are tantamount to suing basically a slain members, service member's widow, because in 2013 a Marine veteran was accused of shooting and killing Kyle, 38, and another military veteran, Chad Littlefield, at a Texas gun range near Fort Worth. Now, Harper Collins, the publisher of the book, did tell CNN that they were removing the passages from the book referring to Ventura. So Ventura saying, hey, you know, this wasn't true. It gets discovered that it's not true. Now he's the bad guy. Why? Well, you know, let's see what he does with this, because I have a hard time blaming him for what he did. Let's see if he actually goes after the, the money. Um, 
you know, I think that if I were, were him, I would want to protect my reputation, right? First of all, he has a reputation um, as, uh, you know, an ex-military. He was a Navy SEAL himself, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Right. Oh, you're absolutely so, correct. You know, there's that reputation that he's got to uphold. Uh, there's a lot of honor uh, among former SEALs, and I think that to uh, defame him or to say something that's not true, and I'm going to say it's not true because that's how a court ruled, that it's not true, and so therefore what was said in the book was defamatory, I, I can understand his position. Whether you like Jesse or not is not important here. Imagine if you were the person, you served your country, you did things the right way, or at least you believed them to be the right way, and now you find yourself being defamed in a book where somebody is saying something about you that's not true. How would you feel? Would you say, oh, it's okay? Or would you say, this isn't right, this is unfair? Of course, I think that the majority of us would say, this isn't right, and I'm going to sue to stop it. Now, I could see people being more upset with him if he who has um, a lot of money goes after the money from the widow. Now, I could see people being angry with that. But maybe, maybe he's just looking for the injunctive relief that he received, uh, HarperCollins removing the paragraph from the book. Maybe that'll be enough to satisfy him. I would hope it would be because I could understand the frustration that others would have in seeing him try to collect that money from the widow, but his actions, I think, are appropriate. He, like you said earlier, he sued before um, Chris died, and so it's not as though he was suing and uh, really going after his widow. He was trying to protect himself at that, that point, and if there's defamatory material about someone in there, in a book, I think you have a right to protect yourself, but I also get the flip side. Jesse's got a lot of money. Why would he want to go after this widow? Let's see what he does with it. But that's my take on well, it. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah I, I, I kind of think you hit the nail right on the head right there. Is let's see what he does with that money, and, and maybe he'll end up in the Wounded Warrior Project or something. Do some good with it. Not that probably Chris Kyle's um, uh, widow wasn't going to do something good with the money either, but uh, I guess it, it proved the point, but he's definitely not won any hearts because of it. Right, right. But you know what? If he were to say... Uh, and listen, I just wanted to get this out in the in the open and be vindicated. I don't want the money. I think that changes a lot of people's opinions about him. Yes, no, you're absolutely correct. And uh, we'll wait. We'll wait and see. The jury's obviously still out on on how they're going to perceive him. So, but yeah. I, I, knowing Jesse Ventura, at least not not personally knowing him, but how he handles himself, he doesn't care. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so that's the week, man. Yeah, he gets he gets the. Uh, the back-end award so far this week, so we'll see what happens next week. Somebody may make a, a bigger jerk of themselves. Maybe right, not on we'll purpose. See. Maybe not on purpose, yeah. <laughs> well, let me just, I know uh, I'm not going to try. <laughs> let me just remind everybody what we've got coming up this week. Um, I don't know if you, you caught it, but last year there was a show on called Game of Arms, and I think it was on um, – Discovery or one of those those networks that I, I like to watch. Game of Arms was about wrestlers, arm wrestlers throughout the country, and it focused on um, different uh, different cities, New York and Colorado and uh, or Sacramento perhaps um, somewhere in Pennsylvania, and it was this uh, show that documented and followed the lives of these arm wrestlers, 
And this Thursday, we're going to have on 26-time world champion arm wrestler Alan Fisher and his wife Carolyn Fisher, who's also a world champion arm wrestler. Uh, Alan is a real fascinating guy. He is an uh, obvious championship wrestler, but also a motivational speaker. He and his wife have formed a company uh, aimed at uh, discussing uh, religion and uh, keeping God in your life and then uh, motivation and being true to who you are and overcoming adversity. So he's a real fascinating guy. I believe he's also a, a pastor. Uh, and the show, if you followed Game of Arms, uh, he's an older guy. He's not in his 20s. And he was trying to uh, come back in the sport and showed a lot of heart and a lot of, um, uh, of motivation that he, he drew within himself, a lot of self-motivation. So he's going to be on with his wife, Carolyn, on Thursday. We're going to talk to him about uh, the lessons that he can teach us in our daily lives and in the business world about overcoming adversity, overcoming challenges and struggles that we face on a daily basis, how to remain positive. He's lost arm, match, arm wrestling matches, but he's also a world champion. And it's the same as, you know, uh, you've heard about home run hitters in baseball, that the greatest home run hitters uh, struck out more times than anybody else, but they also had the more home runs. And it's, it's going to be a, a really good, um, you know what I'm talking about with that baseball yeah. metaphor, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. No, so I think you know, it, it's something I always say and, and tell my kids, everybody fails, it's how you respond to failure that determines your level of success. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Alan and his wife Carolyn will be on to discuss their company, what they're doing with their company, how they're helping people, and uh, to give our listeners some tips about business success and overcoming adversity on a personal level. So that's going to be Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. You can call in at 347-855-8831 to talk to Alan or his wife. Um, Caroline, we're going to put this up, obviously, on social media so that you can ask your questions, and we'll try to get through as many questions with Alan that you might have. Um, if you don't know Alan, Go search Game of Arms, just put it into Google, um, and either some white or Asian individual will help you find that, uh, because <laughs> as Jesse's... Jesse's and, and a male. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It'll be a man for sure, white or Asian, but uh, they'll help you find information on Game of Arms. And you should look it up and check out Alan Fisher, because he's a fascinating guy, so we're excited to have him on. Um, also want to remind everybody... We've seen a massive uh, increase in downloads of the free app that we offer. It's available on iTunes for the iPhone or the iPad. Just go to iTunes, search up Law Offices of Peter Lamont, and you'll find the app. Download the app. It's got good information. Obviously, you can stream live the show every Monday and Thursday. You can also download episodes that have uh, previously aired. There's access to all of the videos. And the best feature, which is the Ask a Lawyer a Question feature, you can type in your question. It goes directly to one of our lawyers in the office who will provide you with an attorney answer to your legal question. And the best part, Bob, best part, all free. All this free. Is, this is part no of in our, our... No in-app purchases. Nothing, nothing. This <laughs> is part of our social outreach uh, and, and our desire to help people understand the law because... Like that Duran Duran story that I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, 
I don't like the fact that people will be attracted to headlines simply to get them in, to draw them in, but then they'll have a false understanding of what's really going on and, and not understand what legally is at play here. So that's why we, we have the app. That's why we have this radio show. And, um, you know, we, we thank all of our listeners who are regular listeners and uh, encourage you to spread the word so that other people can learn more about what goes on and what their rights are. Um, so, you know, we are thankful. Bob, I think that'll do it for us today. Sounds so, great. And the show with Alan Fisher should be over the top, by the way. Yeah, it, at, uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Been waiting for, to squeeze that in, man. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> always leave them wanting more. That's right. All right, Bob. So I'll see you next Monday. We'll have more news. I'll see everybody else on Thursday. Call in, talk to Alan Fisher. Uh, Until then, remember that there's power in understanding the law. Pros and the no start with Lowe's because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets. And you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sForPros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only.